This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation, who support reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey for the Wild community, it's Ayana here. Before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about our Patreon. We are so grateful to all the amazing members of our community who contribute to bringing this podcast to life each week. We couldn't do this work without you. To keep For the Wild freely accessible to all, long-term we're exploring how we can fund the podcast without resigning ourselves to over-commercializing our airtime in order to sustain production. We believe that independent media plays an essential role in telling the truth outside of corporate agendas, and we want to be in integrity as much as possible with how we support this work. We have around 700 Patreon members currently, and we are dreaming into a goal for our Patreon community to grow to 2,000 supporting members in the coming months. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild. And if you're already supporting us in one way or another, we thank you so much and wish you a beautiful season wherever you are. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Nkem Ndefo. And so while the idea of getting away from it to do restoration is important, we also need ways to restore while we're still in it because not always can we get away. Inkem is the founder and president of Lumos Transforms and creator of the Resilience Toolkit, a model that promotes embodied self-awareness and self-regulation in an ecologically sensitive framework and social justice context. Licensed as a nurse midwife, Camp also has extensive postgraduate training in complementary health modalities and emotional therapies. She brings an abundance of experience as a clinician, educator, consultant, and community strategist to innovative programs that address stress and trauma and build resilience for individuals, organizations, and communities across sectors. Inkem is particularly interested in working alongside people most impacted by violence and marginalization. Oh, well, Inkem, thank you so much for joining me today in this conversation. Like I was saying earlier, I feel like 
with all the noise in the world and the stress that we're all living through, having conversations like this are foundational for us to keep going in a good way. So thanks for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you in conversation. I'm very excited to speak with you. Mm -hmm. Yes, me too. So, and Kim, to jump right in, can you tell us about how your work and the Resilience Toolkit seeks to address the reality that over the past couple of years, embodiment has been popularized without it really being rooted in co-liberation? So how does your understanding of embodied resilience differ from the sort of diluted understanding of resilience that has been appropriated to maintain the status quo in so many ways? You know, even like the term resilience, I'm just even to back up there, like sometimes I think about, do we need to use another word because it's been so co-opted, because it's become really a means of punishment to say to so many people, be more resilient. It's a way to individualize systemic problems. It's a way to absolve systems and structures and history of any complicity in the suffering that people have now, the trauma, the stress, toxic stress. But I can't really find another word. So I about reappropriating um, the word resilience and recontextualizing it and connecting people to the systems and the ecologies we live in. And even to have to use the word embodiment is strange because it implies that our we were not embodied before, that there was some kind of separation from our heads to our bodies, from you know some disconnection. And in many ways there are, but that we even need a concept like this to say that this is not a resilience. Like where do you source your resilience from? Where are the sources? And that the body is a huge uh, reservoir of resilience in the sense of resilience being a flexible strength to meet challenges and that the body holds a lot of wisdom and capabilities when we bring it along for the ride that we don't just try to push through intellectually. So in that way, it's embodied resilience. It's using your body as a, as a guide, as a compass, as a companion and a source of strength to meet these challenges flexibly. So I'm going to leave it there. And I mean, I can go further in, in terms of, you know, how the resilience toolkit frames embodied resilience and what are the connectors between the person or the people and meaning people, groups of people and their ecology. But you tell me, I feel like. Yeah, why not? Please take us there. So, so often in the wellness world where it's about lowering your stress and always being calm. And you see it a lot in, I don't know if you want to use the word, it's pejorative, a new age sort of sense of spiritual, almost as a spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity about always be calm and always take the high road and always this. And what happens is, is that people are having legitimate responses, legitimate trauma responses, legitimate stress responses to conditions of adversity, be they interpersonal, be they collective, be they structural. And people are made to feel that there's something wrong in them for having these responses and that they should, you know, if they can just settle, they'll be more productive. And I think of how mindfulness has been co-opted in, in corporate America and other, you know, and as that 
that has spread across the globe, this idea that you're going to do some mindfulness at your lunch hour when you should just be relaxing. You're going to do some mindfulness so you can be more productive. And nowhere does the organization look at how they're contributing to the lack of wellness in their workforce. And so in the Resilience Toolkit, our core objectives are to say, you know, yes, we know that a big source of the um, the suffering comes from history and structure and culture, and that people cannot be solely as individuals responsible for that. But we also know that systems don't change themselves in that sense, right? They don't, like a, an oppressive system doesn't become liberatory of its own volition. That there are people who are instrumental in shifting and, and very intentionally making those liberatory changes. And that those of us who are typically tasked with doing that are the ones who are the most marginalized and are the most vulnerable. And so in essence, we do need more resilience to be able to shift the systems. And so this is this paradox here, but it's the reality where I think most of us find ourselves. And so how do we become, the Resilience Toolkit helps us become more aware of what our actual responses are. When are we activated in stress? When are we settled? And then to ask ourselves a very important question is, is my reaction right now, is it adaptive? Because it's a bi- often a biological reaction that becomes psychological, that becomes uh, cognitive. But in the biology, is it adaptive or responsive to this situation? Is it really helping me? And most of the time we find that we're overreacting for a host of reasons. And it's not that our reaction is wrong per se, it's just stronger than is useful. And by learning and choosing from a sort of a menu of body-based tools, how can I downshift my stress response, right? So I'm not blowing off this extra energy in an over-response. And it allows me, as I settle into a more adaptive stress response to the moment, to access what's been locked inside of me, what's been hijacked because of the stress or trauma response, the excessive one. And I get access again to more creative and flexible visioning. And I'm more open to collaboration. I know how to rest. I know how to recover. And in that way, I, I am more poised for sustainable work for liberation. And there's like, you know, a better chance when we're collaborating, when we've got more creative visions, we can really kind of, you know, work on the systems and open them up a little bit. So then they're not pressing down on us so much. And so it's back and forth recursive loop between us settling, working to open up the systems and then the systems giving us more space so we can settle more. So Mm. there, I said a lot more. (laughs) That was such a beautiful (laughs) opening. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to focus on how cultivating embodied resilience helps us build capacity for discomfort. And this is so vital right now because I'm sure we're all seeing so many conversations collapse or remain stymied because people are freezing in their discomfort. Similarly, I've heard you speak about the function of numbness and how BIPOC also go numb to sort of stay afloat in spaces where white people are, for the first time, having to dismantle their privilege and in doing so are opening themselves to a flooding of pain, you know, previously hidden by oppressive systems. 
So how does embodied resilience mitigate our propensity to disconnect amidst difficult conversations? So when we can lean into our body for some wisdom, you know, our, I find that the body can't lie to us like we can lie to ourselves in our thoughts. The body may have responses that are like, maybe you're having an old trauma response to what's happening right in this moment. And so you think in some way your body is lying to you, but it's not, it's telling the truth. It's just has, doesn't have the time right. It's talking about something in the past. So in that way, it's this idea that the body has this wisdom and it kind of tells us like, if we can cue into, hey, I'm in this conversation right now and it's a hard conversation and I noticed my mouth went dry. I noticed I'm holding my breath. I notice I, I'm having a hard time hearing what's being said. My mind is jumping ahead to what I want to say. If I can become aware of those as stress responses that are starting to crest over my threshold for staying present, if I can become aware of that and I have some kind of tool to help myself recognize, wait a second, is it really that dangerous right now? And most of the time it's not that dangerous. And I can again, downshift my response a little bit. It allows me to stay open and my hearing shifts, right? And it's really, a, these are biological changes. The more stressed we are, our hearing tunes away from the range of the human voice and more to low sort of danger sounds in the environment. We literally don't hear each other. And so in order to be in a conversation of any kind, let alone a difficult conversation, the capacity to listen is so crucial. And so be able to listen to my body's own signs that I'm exceeding my threshold and settle myself lets me stay in connection, lets me stay open and have that spaciousness around the ideas, around people's feelings and my own feelings and, and ability to sit with that discomfort. And on the flip side, as you spoke about, is recognizing when things might not be safe, right? It might not be safe as a BIPOC person to be in a room, in a group, in a collective with white folks awakening to privilege and struggling with white guilt and white shame. That might not actually be all that safe of a space for a BIPOC person and for us to recognize like, you know what, this is not all right for me. And that I did go numb and that maybe I've exceeded my threshold. Cause it's not always that when something you've exceeded your threshold, that we are the people that need to settle. Sometimes we need to remove ourselves from the situation and say, the situation just like, isn't okay. But if we're not for me at this moment with my, my capacity, or the degree of safety and my awareness of what my system, what my body is telling me helps inform my decisions. And there's a, you know, there's a time in when we're doing racism repair where affinity groups make a lot of sense until people are there are a better, better set of skills to enter into hard conversations and stay in hard conversations in ways with, with a certain skillfulness and that embodiment skill. Because we see a lot of anti-racism initiatives founder because they're highly cognitive, especially in, if we're talking about corporate spaces where we're like, here's, a, here's your, you know, whatever your equity checklist. And so we're doing it by force of compliance. Or, you know, where we end up in a space where people are so hypervigilant and afraid to say anything, to hurt anybody's feelings, that it shuts down capacity for connection. 
And so there's this basic set of skills about trust and um, safety, which are really body-based skills. We can't make trust and, and safety in our heads. It just doesn't work. I think about this very interesting study that was done in Sierra Leone after Civil War, where they used some um, sort of restorative practices. And it was a very interesting study because it was, they randomized 200 villages where half received went through restorative processes and the other half did not. And they followed them for three years. And like you would expect, oh, you went through restorative processes and you find, you know, on measures of people's social engagement and, and what they say as, as how much they trust their neighbors and their community were higher in the, the groups that had gone through restorative processes. But when it came to psychological measures, they were worse than those who had not. And I, you know, the authors of the paper spoke to that restorative processes are not the same as trauma healing. And I would go one step further is that we know trauma is a process that is not just cognitive and it's not just emotional, it's also biological. And in fact, it's probably biological first before it becomes emotional and before it becomes cognitive, just thinking about how we know the body works. And that if you don't address the body, Someone comes to you and they're having an emotional outpouring and you, you know, in a restorative process and you, you know, there's amends that are made and you cognitively say, I forgive this person, but you still have that lump in your throat. You still feel that clutch in your chest, that pit in your stomach. If those aren't addressed, those are what come back. And those are what grow as we revisit them over and over. And they you know, rise up into our emotional state and into our thoughts and begin to hijack our behavior, much to our consternation. We're like, I forgave them. Why am I still? And so I think about that when we're doing racial healing processes, that if we ignore the body, we ignore it at our peril because our efforts will be short-lived. The body will remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was recently reading a piece titled How We Fight Without Hating by Valerie Brown in Tricycle Magazine. And Valerie writes, quote, our hearts are broken open by grief, fear, and anger. How do we fight injustice and not hate those who perpetuate it? How do we fight injustice and support ourselves? How do we deepen our resolve for a more just and equitable world within that unjust and inequitable world? How do we face the fear of failure within ourselves and in our society? End quote. And yeah, I think so many are trying their hardest to not be overwhelmed with frustration and anger every day. And I wonder if maybe you could respond to this in terms of how embodied resilience can also relieve feelings of hatred when they come up as we try to communicate change. I mean, I think a lot of it is there's, I mean, this is a capacity question, right? The capacity to sit with hard and big things without shrinking, collapsing, going rigid. Like typically how we respond is how we respond. And it tends to, we tend to each have our own patterns. Some of us, when we hit our threshold, we disconnect. Um, Some of us shut down. Some of us act out. Some of us um, get rigid and controlling, you know, and, and 
maybe we have a few patterns, right? But we have our style, our, our, our little insignia. And so when we reach our threshold, regardless of the, the stimulus, it tends, we tend to go into that response. And so it's about how do we grow our window of tolerance, our ability to sit with hard things without going into our pattern. Um, and I think what I find is this idea that I presented earlier that so many of us are in an over-response most of the time and that we're constantly exceeding. And part of that is, you know, late stage capitalism that asks us to constantly be in production and constantly to be in consumption and, and to push, push, push. And there's no, if there's rest, it's certainly not recovery. And so, so many of us, when we truly stop our window of tolerance that where we can stay connected to ourselves in a calm and, and you know, spacious way is actually quite small because when you're constantly pushing, you decrease your resilience. You decrease your reserves. It's like, you know, we over, you overspend your bank account, be it energy, be it, be it money, you know, um, you end up, your reserves are depleted and you're more reactive and you have a harder time tolerating, tolerating things. And most of us know this intuitively. Um, yet still, this is how we conduct our lives. This is how the culture is asks us to conduct our lives. And so the ability in, for moment to moment to track what is been um, what is the most adaptive response allows you to not exceed your threshold when it's not necessary. Because when it is necessary, that then you can dig in and go into your your reserves. But if you're doing it every day all the time and I think a big lesson for me and where I learned this is I have MECFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. And, you know, I was quite sick for some period of time on and off, but uh, the last several years were very, very rough. And uh, one of the strategies for managing, well, one of the hallmark symptoms of the disease is activity intolerance. Basically, you know, the theory is, is that our mitochondria are not producing energy appropriately for a number of reasons, almost like a kind of hibernation, if you want to think, cellular hibernation. And so anywhere I, where I would expend energy, like I would have a payback afterwards. It was like, it's called post-exertional malaise. It's more than malaise. It's all the symptoms flare. And so I learned pacing which is don't spend all your energy in one place. I had to really be very, very careful and measured and say, okay, I'm doing this activity. Am I spending more energy than I have? Um, making sure to dial it back and really learn what is rest and what is restoration. And I think that has heavily influenced how I think about the world. And I see that when I'm able to listen to my body's rhythms and when my body is asking for rest and I can give it when I don't push when it's when you have to you push right for many years I was single mom and working and going to school and and you have to push you push but many times we're pushing when we don't need to and so when we can dial that back that grows this reserve that embodied resilience that gives us the capacity in hard conversations, in movement work, to be more spacious, to have more grace, to have more compassion, where we may feel anger, but it doesn't calcify into hatred. 
You mentioned wanting to discuss appeasement as a biological and cultural response. And what I really appreciate and want to highlight about your work is that you talk about how we need to think about appeasement, not just as a fight or flight response, but as a protective response to hierarchies. So can you define appeasement for us and share the forms it takes on? Yeah, appeasement is been something that I've been very interested in in the last few Mm. years, a lot of thinking and reflection Mm -hmm. and a lot of talking and conversation. And I'm actually just starting some writing on it now. Um, There's very little research about it. So, I mean, we know what the word appeasement in in, in like a colloquial sense, right? It's like placating or, you know, playing nice. I think what's important is that the, the biological discussions around stress and trauma are use a actually a predatory model of one species. They often lean into animal-based, non-human animal-based predatory models of a predator and prey, as opposed to really looking at the, that as humans, that's not the main source of our, our stress. We are apex predators. So it's really not us being prey that we're really talking in scientific terms. It's your conspecific, it's your species to species. And it's usually not kill or be killed. We're talking about social hierarchy for the most part. That is the bulk of of where things come from. And that, so when we talk about fight flight, and we know that most of the research done around stress response has been done in white men in uh, North America and Western Europe, and then extrapolated or, you know, without thought to everybody. So this idea that who gets to fight and flee if you're if you're in a situation where somebody has more power than you by dent of their identity what the culture has given them or by dent of their role in the organization or the group structure that you're in right and something happens they do something to you in that situation it's generally your fight and flight are not options <laughs> they actually make things worse. And so it's a very privileged place to think that you can fight and sometimes, and it's a very, very privileged place to think that you can run. I mean, I think about, there's an example I use often when I teach of, it was a situation here in the US, actually in Southern California, where um, a group of young black women had rented an Airbnb and they were, checking out of the Airbnb and putting their luggage in their trunk of their car. And a white neighbor saw them, didn't recognize them as owners of the home and waved at them. 
And the women didn't recognize the woman. They don't know her. They didn't wave back. So the neighbor called the police and the police in typical U.S. fashion sent a helicopter and multiple cars. And what ensued was a tense situation and it was diffused and nobody was arrested and, you know, it was cleared up. But what I find instructive here is that these black women, when you see you're surrounded by police cars, you're terrified. And you would want to run, but if you ran, what would happen? It's not a privilege to run. They don't have that privilege there. They don't have the, if they were to fight and sort of mouth off to the officers, we know that they could likely not survive the interaction. Again, no privilege to fight. And so what happens is they appease and appeasement takes a number of different forms. And in this particular instance, the form it took was they laughed and joked with the officers. They laughed and joked with the officers. And so what happens is they leave, the, the officers leave the experience and say, look, they were happy, you know, everything's fine, we did fine. The women leave the, this incident and say, we were terrified, we were afraid for our lives. Look at the disconnect between those two experiences. Because part of what makes appeasement work is it has to be a little bit invisible, right? And so um, the police force actually did a press conference afterwards and said, the women, we'll show you the videos. The women were happy and they were laughing. And this goes to, to show that there's a masking that happens. And it's not just that we're socially conditioned to do it, because you could say that, because we see bears do it. We see non-human primates appease. We see dogs appease. So we know that there's some biological underpinning or when there's social hierarchy. And I would, I'm venturing to think is that most of us, when we're on the bottom end of a social hierarchy, spend the greater part of our existence in appeasement. And that actually is the most common form of our responses that we live in and in my speaking to audiences, you know, in the US, in Africa, in Europe, this has resonated with all different kinds of audiences where they say, yes, this is what I am experiencing. And to hear it named so clearly, people are quite relieved and to understand that there's a lot of shame when we, when we have appeased, we may leave a situation and say, well, why didn't I speak up? Why didn't I do anything? When in fact, our body has locked us into a, a freeze on top of the, the, the roiling fight flight that's kept inside. Oh, you know, the freeze is holding us to keep us safe. So it's almost a combination of those two. And when people can hear, oh, that, that's why I didn't respond. And there's a it moves from a shame to a self-compassion. I was keeping myself safe. And the other important piece to, to tie into this is that we can have appeasement responses and we can settle our responses when we realize they're stronger than they need to be. They're not useful or adaptive. I don't need to be appeasing in this situation. But appeasement cannot be solved by the individual alone because it's part, it's, it's, it's a, byproduct or a feature actually it's not a byproduct it is a feature of uh, social hierarchy of inequity i think many of us would willingly admit that in the past year 
we found ourselves in a permanent state of stress. And I also think about this in terms of the Anthropocene and that many of us will live through a period that is characterized by a certain degree of uncertainty because of Earth's own distress. So we really need holistic perspectives on stress and anxiety that acknowledge the impacts of living in a stress-inducing ecology long-term. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the importance of ensuring we don't get stuck in cycles of stress and trauma in relation to the ways in which stress hijacks our capacity to imagine and create? I was um, teaching in London last year, and um, there was a little contingent of folks who work around building awareness around climate collapse, climate crisis. And what they were finding is, is that people just shut down. It's so overwhelming that they literally just shut down. They can't even engage in the conversation. And so the question is, is like, how, how can we engage people if they can't even hear us? And it comes back to this ability to sit with, you know, to grow your capacity to, to sit with hard things, which is to recognize when you're pushing, when you don't need to, so you can your nervous system gets a chance to rest and restore and rebuild some of that flexibility that it needs to expand around these really hard things and have spaciousness. I almost like, sometimes I have this image, had this image over the years of like, when you have a big feeling and it's bigger than you and it just spills out all over you, right? Like it's just like it's just bigger than your body. It fills the room. And there's no, it's like really hard to be spacious, to vision, to do all of anything, right? When you're just contending in, in this thing. And that about the impulse to how do we grow ourselves so that we are bigger than the, than the feeling itself. And we recognize that the feeling is a part of us, but that there are other feelings and that there are other experiences and other thoughts and other sensations. And in that way, we can start to move with instead of be overwhelmed by. And so it's, it comes back to really the same process. Um, and people have different impulses about why they may want to learn this set of skills. They may want to learn it because we're, this is 2020 and 2020 is all of the things. Um, they may want to learn it specifically. I want to do racial healing work. I want to, I'm having a hard time sitting and then collapsing into white shame and I can't stay in conversations around racism. They may want to say like, when I start doing work around climate issues, I just become so overwhelmed and then I can't sleep. And then, you know, and so then what good are we to anybody? Um, and so people have a tendency to either put up walls to, you know, do their thing um, tune it out, have to leave, they burn out in movements, have to disengage. It's a good part of my work, you know, being a single mom and having kids and not being able to travel and um, was really good because I stayed put while I did the work. Um, and I worked with groups over long periods of time and I worked with groups that didn't have the ability to pick up and go places. When I'm working with, done a lot of work with gang intervention. So these are people who are formerly in gangs themselves and live in the same communities that they grew up in. These are people who can't go on retreat, 
can't go on retreat. So I needed to say, like, how do we develop methods for people when they're in it that they can use while they're in it? And never did I think I would live through a pandemic. I don't think any of us did. But it's the same thing. This is like it's something that's all consuming. It's all the time. The climate issues are all consuming all the time. The race issues all consuming all the time. And so while the idea of getting away from it to do restoration is important, we also need ways to restore while we're still in it because not always can we get away. Mm -hmm. Not always can we get away. Well, I'm, you know, wondering about the psoas muscle, and I know that it plays a vital role in stress response, becoming activated when we enter a period of fight, flight, or freeze, which has happened to me quite a few times. And um, and I think about the trauma that is held in that part of the body. And it really emphasizes something that we should all know, which is that working with the body is so vital. We can't treat it individually. But that's exactly what is done under Western systems that are hyper-obsessed with the siloing of intellect, body, and spirit. And so I wonder if you can just remind us what happens when we don't address the body and even how beginning to think about moving our bodies in different ways is vital to relieving suffering. The idea that, you know, I was having this conversation earlier this week with somebody who said, well, I know other people do emotions, but I'm an action person. Like I don't do emotions, <laughs> what she said. And the thing is emotions or even the biology under underlying the emotions sometimes doesn't care what we think. Often it doesn't care what we think. It's just going to have the reaction that it has, because when we come to talking about stress and trauma, it's about survival, trauma in particular. And so your body has those primitive responses that come first. Uh, sometimes I'll use an example of like, you know, most cultures have games that involve balls. And if you're sitting on the sidelines watching whatever game that is that has a ball and something comes hurtling towards you, if you pause to give it a lot of thought about what is this thing coming hurling towards me, it hits you before you can move. If you pause to have a feeling, oh, it's kind of scary that thing is hurtling towards me, it also will hit you. What actually happens is your body moves once it recognizes it's in danger. And then you say afterwards, oh, that was so scary. Did you see what just happened? That's how it works. And when we can remember that, it, you can understand that the stressors and the traumas that we're experiencing, our bodies are going through that. So if we don't pay attention to the body piece, thinking back to the example I gave from the study in Sierra Leone, the body will come back and hijack us. So make friends with it or not. <laughs> it's still going to do what it's going to do. Um, so I prefer to make friends with it and work alongside. And to the, the comment about the siloing that happens, I find it's not, I mean, it's hard to, to break that, that pattern or move away from it because there's a move about either the psoas or I hear it also about the vagus nerve, right? And where people talk about the psoas in relationship to its role in, in the trauma response because it's the muscle that contracts and helps, you know, us fold our, it 
uh, top and bottom part of our bodies above the waist, below the waist, where we crunch into a ball to protect ourselves. If you hear a loud sound, you kind of jerk and close in, right? That's some psoas action there. Um, so it's certainly part of it, but it's one player in the whole thing, in the, in the symphony. And people talk about the vagus nerve and there's, you know, different branches of the vagus nerve. Often when people are talking about the, the branch they're talking about is the part that is involved in settling the stress response. And then people then talk about the vagus, which again is one player in a symphony as if it is the only thing. And so there's a reductionist impulse because we're talking about complex systems and they're hard to talk about with nuance. So we use some things as proxy, but sometimes when we're using it as a proxy, we forget and we confuse it with the whole thing. And so I would just like to, I want to always expand that lens to recognize that this is a symphony that involves your immune system, your central nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, your gut, our predominantly hormone systems. These are the systems that are involved in stress and in trauma. And they're all talking to each other all the time. Like one of the big things, again, through my illness that I was able to discover is that a big part of my reactivity, it comes from my immune system. Um, and that the immune system will drive my stress response. And so if I'm having a low level allergic reaction to something, I will be more stress reactive. But our over psychologicalization of, of our culture is to look for the psychological reasons for stress only. Just like it ignores the ecological reasons for stress, we also ignore biological reason, reasons for stress. So just expanding the lens to look at all of those is useful in, and practical. Like if you're a highly allergic person, you're also usually probably a highly stressed and, and more likely to be anxious person as well. They tend to go hand in hand, but it's often all shoved off onto psychology. So um, I don't know. I might have lost the thread of your original question, but I appreciate the, <laughs> the impulse, it, the direction it took me. Mm. Tell me, did I did I answer? Yeah, I mean, the questions are just diving boards. So mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, and oh, yeah, it's it's good for me to personally think about too. Just I've been working through stress and as I'm, I know so many folks are and um, it's nice to just sit with you in the thought process of it all and yeah and I'm thinking about as wellness and self-care have been industrialized in the west I've heard this narrative of healing as a permanent state that we're always healing which to some extent I understand but I think you make an important intervention by pointing out that healing is intended to allow us to live our lives. We aren't actually meant to heal forever. And I think about how this idea of infinite healing might mean that we're in a state of diminished power as well, which limits our ability to aid in co-liberation. So can you share why you think it's so important to complete the healing cycle and how this completion also relates to safety and how becoming healed allows us to feel safe and become safe. I don't know 
if I would go so far as say completion. I think sometimes the impulse around healing, I mean, the impulse around healing, there's a lot of suffering, right? And so the impulse is like, I want to relieve this suffering myself and of others, right? And, and very noble and important work. What happens is I think we can get stuck in never good enough, so almost it's like a capitalistic impulse of never good enough of, around healing where we get stuck in using it as a way of controlling our environment. Well, if I can just tinker and improve, tinker and improve, tinker and improve, um, it's a way to deal with uncertainty. And I, I think for myself, at, there was times in with my own illness about looking at the idea of always healing is actually quite ableist. Is there an acceptance of that? I have limitations. Can I accept my limitations? How do I balance the tension between could I improve or is this, can I accept where I am? It's a very hard question that I've navigated in, in various places along in between and pulling between those tensions where, no, this is this, I'm accepting that I have this illness. And then hmm, maybe I'd like to try one more therapy. And how do we walk back and forth between those? I think there's cycles of healing rather than a, we're I'm done. Kind of. So there may be see, or cycles or seasons might be a better where there's periods where we are more uh, intent, intentional, in our healing efforts. And then also remembering to stop and celebrate what is working. Like not always, the idea that there's always something to be healed comes from a stress activation cycle, like a, itself. I'm stress activated, so I'm going to see what's negative here. I'm going to see what's problematic instead of seeing also what is working and what is right and what is good and what is pleasurable. So there's that, that as well. You know, when they say like when your feet hurt, all you can think about is your feet. And when your feet don't hurt, you just walk. You just walk. And that feels very liberating to me. Um, But some of us, our feet might hurt a little all the time. And that might be part of our experience and will never change. Can we make that okay too? So there's a lot of threads in here about ableism, about control, the, the unknown, um, about acceptance, about um, the impulse to relieve suffering and heal. And I think avoiding absolutes, can I heal a little bit and I feel a little safer? I think about my own journey, having lived through uh, sexual abuse at a very young age, and so young that I could never remember really what safety was. It wasn't a concept for me. I'm like, I guess this is what safety is. And only through healing later, years later into my thirties, into my forties, did I say, oh, is this the safety people were talking about? Oh, oh, is this the safety? And like, and then maybe, you know, a year later, two years later, I go through, you know, another, you know, there's, again, seasons of healing and like, oh, wait, this, this is what they're talking about. And I would say really 
at four, I'm 50 now at 48, I had a drop into another level of safety that I had never experienced in my life before. And I said, wow, this one's delicious. Could there be more possibly? Do I need to insatiably hunt for it? Can I accept this as good enough? These are the questions that come up. In a conversation you had with Alex Howard titled Building Capacity for Healing Racial Trauma, you talked about how Western culture does not have good repair models. We have domination and submission models. And this reminded me of something I read from Glenn Elbrecht where he writes, quote, This form of political economy has been called corruptalism. Even better, perhaps, oh. would be Corumpalism, from the Latin corrumpere to destroy. Corumpalism is the ability to corrupt and destroy the integrity of a social system and its biophysical foundation by perverting all forms of development. End quote. Oof. Yeah. So it's clear Oof. we have to break this model of domination and destruction. And so I wonder if you could speak a bit to where you source inspiration for models of repair and symbiosis and how we can bring ecological thinking into healing and change work as well. I'm a, I'm an empiricist, but also like inveterately curious. <laughs> like one of my questions always is like, how many tabs are open on your browser? <laughs> Because I've got way too many. I'm curious on all kinds of things. <laughs> me too. And so it's not always clear to me during, because I, again, I'm in, I'm in there and, and tinkering and trying with different people about where I'm like, oh, that worked. And I'm not like sure, was it an intuitive hit? I am trained as a, a nurse midwife. And for some years I did home birth. And that was a big teacher. Woo. Birth is a fantastic teacher. Um, things are heightened in many ways at those. I love, I'm, I'm a lover of liminal spaces. Um, and because there's just so much openness and possibility and in all senses, both, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes it's scary. It can be all the things. And I would love being in the room with a, a birthing person, her their support people, some baby trying to come earthside, myself, an assistant. And the really 
doing home birth, like our parameters were safety and the birthing folks wishes and how we would try, just try different things. And as long as everyone was doing okay, we could try and we discovered some really, you know, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom to tap into um, from our tra my training and uh, my teachers. And there's also the inspiration in the moment of what can be discovered only in that space at that time and how that can be carried over to whether it was, you know, a different position or a, a particular tool or an approach that came, that was born out of, out of that crucible of, cause birth can be that definitely a crucible there, not always. And so I think I take that spirit. That's sort of my spirit of working around what, what this looks like. I still think of myself as a midwife, even though I don't attend births anymore, physical births. Right now, my big concern has been with adequate preparation, preparation for transformation, which I think is really overlooked. And so my inspiration around, because if we don't prepare well, we, people don't have the capacity to stay in conversations for any length of time. They don't have capacity for staying connected and collective visioning. Things collapse, become rigid, people attack one another, breaks down. So right now, the, my inspiration is really my life as a gardener, preparing soil, planting seeds, nourishing the soil, nourishing plants, observing what the plant's telling me by how it's growing. So right now that that's really, in fact, I'm building a, out a big embodied anti-racism project for a very large public health care system in the United States at a scale that boggles my mind sometimes when I think about the hundreds of thousands of patients, people they see every year and the tens of thousands of staff in all different departments doing all different things and how we're using the gardening metaphor here and to lean into that, to slow people down when they're like, we're preparing soil right now, slow down. We're going to have a really... Um, anemic harvest if we don't slow down and really, really feed the soil. We're going to plant a few rounds of cover crops <laughs> here and mulch them in. So, and I'm open to all different other kinds of models as well. Again, inveterate curious, inveterately curious. Mm. Mm. I like your diving boards. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, well, and Kim, this has been such a beautiful deep dive off the board with you. And thank you so much for your time. And as we come to a close, I just like to offer the space for any words or resources you'd like to direct listeners to. Hmm. No, I, I feel pretty complete. I feel like we touched on a lot of things and hopefully opened up some areas for folks to ponder and reflect on and maybe some things were tied up in a bow, but I hope not too much because that's not good either. That there's, that you're like, follow those curiosities and maybe I'm going to add one more thing that this has been on my mind lately. I see in a fair amount of people who do liberation work, 
for with a great interest in in spaciousness and freedom rightly so it becomes though that anything that is tight and small is bad and things that are big and spacious are good there a dialectic is set up and it becomes rigid and it becomes as problematic as the the that rigid dialectic of small and you know bad and open big good becomes a problem in and of itself because there are time it, you lose your ability to be responsive there are moments that call for a, a directiveness there are moments that call us to hold space in a very open and loose way i was speaking to a student or maybe it was yesterday i don't know the days blur together a bit but and i had said it's like you're so beautiful in the way you hold space in that open gentle way but if somebody was cut and bleeding in front of you and they're bleeding out is that a time to just hold space Mm-mm. they need you to be directive and so for those of us who are doing movement work and really prizing these open spaces how do we find places to how do we find okayness in us to be able to be as comfortable when places are tight and small that we're still able to creatively vision and work collaboratively and listen to one another in those tight spaces and how do we recognize that there might be times when tight spaces are actually the best answer or at least good enough so that's what i would say that's what i'd like to It's been top of mind this week. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Harrison Foster, Marion McLaughlin, Ariana Saraha, and Emily Ritz. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger.